You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business. Huawei gets to buy some products from U.S. companies again. CISA reiterates warnings about the risk of cyber attack from Iran. Considerations about power grid security. Cryptocurrencies draw criminals and some of the scammers are looking ahead. Australia and New Zealand will conduct a simulation to study ways of removing abhorrent content from the web. The Senate likes hack the Pentagon. And tech enthusiasm or voyeurism. You decide. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Monday, July 1st, 2019. President Trump has agreed to permit Huawei to buy some U.S. products. They'll be allowed to buy the boring kit, as CRN puts it, the stuff not deemed to present a threat to national security. Included in that boring kit would be, for one big example, Google's Android operating system. The White House says this doesn't mean the U.S. intends to go squishy on Huawei and that it remains very much alive to the risks the company poses. For its part, Huawei says it welcomes what the company calls a U-turn in U.S. security policy. The case reminds many observers of ZTE's experience when the company was pulled back from the brink by a U.S. decision to permit ZTE to continue to buy some of the U.S. products it depended on to keep its business going. The Huawei decision is about U.S. exports to the company, not about permitting Huawei products general access to U.S. markets. The decision has drawn decidedly mixed reviews, but big tech will probably be pleased by any relaxation of export controls. In an interview with Ars Technica, U.S. CISA director Krebs repeated his agency's warnings of expected Iranian cyber attacks against U.S. targets. It's more than a regional matter, he said, alluding to tensions around the Arabian Gulf. And he again warned that enterprises should consider destructive wiper attacks a real possibility. There's been a great deal of recent concern about cyber attacks against power grids, with the U.S. warning of both Russian and Iranian hostile interest in the North American grid, and with Russia complaining that the U.S. had staged malware in Russia's own grid, presumably as either a deterrent or as battle space preparation. An example of power disruption in Japan that came to light last week wasn't a cyber attack, but it was worth considering as a cautionary tale in the light of such worries about the vulnerability of power generation and distribution. Western Digital disclosed that a 13-minute power failure at its partner Toshiba Memory disrupted flash memory production. The accident is said to have destroyed some six exabytes of product. Production is expected to return to normal in the middle of July, and there may be a noticeable economic effect. Significant fluctuations in flash prices are expected, the disclosure suggests. Another incident, and this one was an attack, 
is the ransomware infestation at aviation components manufacturer ASCO. That attack remains only partially remediated. Things are said to be improving, but ASCO doesn't yet have a projected time for full recovery. Australia is leading a voluntary international agreement in which governments would swiftly take down abhorrent content posted online. Along with partners from New Zealand, the government intends to hold a major simulation to determine how such a takedown might be managed. As Australian officials put it at the G20, quote, The commitments from the Australian task force to combat terrorist and extreme violent material online the government set up following the Christchurch terrorist attacks will see tighter monitoring and controls on live streaming and simulation exercise to further test social media companies' capabilities. End quote. Altcoins are drawing scammers for familiar Willie Sutton-esque reasons. That's where the money is. Iran has taken down two big cryptocurrency mining farms run from disused factories. Authorities say the activity was sufficiently power-hungry to have rendered portion of the grid unstable, with consumers of electricity noticing problems. A new cryptocurrency, Luno, which is Esperanto for moon, has already become the fishbait in a social engineering campaign. The usual cautions apply, but in this case note that Luno phishing is marked by fewer linguistic stigmata than normally appear in phishing emails. And Facebook's much-ballyhooed Libra cryptocurrency, greeted as everything from a new era of trade and remittances outside the stranglehold of central banks, to the mark of the beast and inter alia something like an Illuminati plot to control everyone's identity. Anyway, Libra, as we say, is already the occasion of a competitive criminal scramble to register domains that look or sound sort of the way the scammers imagine a Libra domain would. So prepare yourself in advance. The fishers of coin are already baiting their trawl lines. Security firm Proofpoint recently shared warnings that bad actors are increasingly targeting specific individuals within organizations, making use of techniques like social engineering to gain access. With this in mind, they say it's important for organizations to focus on the human side of cybersecurity. Gretel Egan is security awareness and training strategist at Proofpoint. First being to look at the threat intelligence that you have. Most people are monitoring email. Most people have threat detection tools uh, in place. So great idea to take a look at what is coming into your organization and who is receiving, who is the intended recipient if things are being blocked, you know, of those types of attacks and how those attacks are being structured uh, what type of messages are in these emails? Are there malicious attachments? Are there malicious links? How are they being structured? And then really kind of taking a look at who and what departments and what roles are cyber attackers valuing uh, that maybe is a little different than my perception of who I think cyber attackers might be going after. We do see a lot of organizations kind of assuming that those VIPs of the very visible C-level executives, that these are the people that cyber attackers are going to go after. And certainly they are. However, we see attackers looking up and down org charts to uh, find their points of compromise. Important to really know how your organization in specific is being attacked. Another way, a second way to figure that out is to use some security awareness and training tools Things like uh, phishing simulations, phishing tests, uh, where you send out 
simulated fishing attacks, different types, different structures, you know, and look at the people within your organization who are vulnerable and susceptible to those types of attacks. Who's clicking? Who's engaging? Who is being tricked into uh, providing credentials or being tricked into going to, you know, a malicious website based on the way you've structured your test? Now, when you're testing your employees for phishing, is, is it better to take a carrot or a stick approach? If someone does click through on that link, or is he, it seems to me like that's a, a moment for education rather than perhaps punishment. It certainly is what we advocate. Really, basically, it comes down to the fact that organizations are allowing their technology to fail. Uh, we have these purpose-built technical tools that are not 100% capable of stopping everything that's coming in. But at the same time, these same organizations are sometimes looking to their users to be right 100% of the time. That's just not going to happen. We really advocate for making it a positive learning experience for the user at that moment, rather than a quote unquote punishing experience, if you will. You don't really want to turn that moment into a point where uh, an employee feels not only vulnerable because they've exhibited potentially a, a susceptible behavior that's a dangerous behavior, but then also to feel kind of attacked by their organization in that same moment. So really a great idea what we advocate for is much more of a carrot approach, taking that as a learning moment, a teachable moment, and moving ahead in a positive direction to try to positively influence future behavior. The human factor in our opinion, will always be at play um, when you have people making decisions, posting to social media, taking actions on mobile devices, on downloading apps and interacting with things. I don't see a point where technical safeguards are going to catch up enough to stop all threats. That's Gretel Egan from Proofpoint. The just-passed Senate version of the National Defense Authorization Act for 2020 includes strong encouragement for defense and security agencies to use crowdsourced security testing. The report that accompanies the act specifically calls out the Defense Department's Hack the Pentagon program as a model. And finally, in a bit of good news, the creator of the AI-powered app Deep Nude has taken down and stopped selling his invention. Deep Nude was an app that would transform ordinary photos of women and tellingly, it only worked on women, and automatically transformed the photo into an apparent nude. So, yeah, horrifying. Many consider it a sign of what's to come in the deep fake field, but for now, at least this one is gone. Managing the requirements for modern security programs is increasingly challenging and time-consuming. Enter Vanta. Vanta gives you one place to centralize and scale your security program, quickly assess risk, streamline security reviews, and automate compliance for ISO 27001, SOC 2, and more. You can leverage Vanta's market-leading trust management platform to unify risk management and secure the trust of your customers. Plus, use Vanta AI to save time when completing security questionnaires. CyberWire daily listeners can get $1,000 off by going to vanta.com cyber. 
That's V-A-N-T-A dot com slash cyber. In the dynamic world of enterprise security, identity architects and IT leaders face a major challenge. Growth by repeated acquisitions multiplies the complexity of everything. Multiple IDPs, MFA providers, policy engines that all need to coexist. This can lead to fragmented user identities and policies that create security vulnerabilities and add access friction. Strata Identity solves this. Now you can decommission unneeded IDPs and consolidate the ones you'd like to keep without rewriting apps or disrupting users, engineers, and app owners. Plus, Strata's modular architecture makes it easy to integrate with any identity provider without manual maintenance and coding. Join the ranks of cybersecurity leaders using identity orchestration. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your top identity security priorities, and receive a pair of complimentary AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations with over 5,000 employees. Step into a new era of identity management at strata.io slash cyberwire. Joining me once again is Justin Harvey. He's the Global Incident Response Leader at Accenture. Justin, it's always great to have you back. Um, I wanted to touch base with you today about two-factor authentication, particularly on mobile devices, and ways that some of the bad guys have figured out how to bypass that. Yeah, Dave, just like a car with brakes, we, we, we tell everyone your, your car must have brakes, uh, but if you don't take care of them or if you if you don't understand how and why and where to use them, you're probably going to crash. And the same is true a little bit for multi-factor authentication. For years now, we've been saying get MFA, use it on everything you've got. But we're starting to see adversaries really take advantage of that through a few ways. The first is mobile SIM number rerouting. So this is where, uh, let's say that you're with a large mobile carrier, your phone has been working for years, but the adversary can look up your phone number and figure out which provider you're with. Then they will hmm. call the provider up and social engineer them to essentially reset the password, and then they'll log in as you and reroute your SIM card or the number going to their SIM card to their SIM card. So essentially, mm. they're hijacking your phone number, and then it's as easy as the adversary going in, starting the two-factor, and it sends them an SMS, And but instead of sending the real owner the code, it's going to the adversary. I think the best way to guard yourself against these types of attacks is figuring out and determining what sort of customer identification process your mobile phone provider has and making sure that your answers are strong. That actually leads us into the second type of multi-factor override, which is abusing the recovery process. Most multi-factor platforms have the capability so that if you lose your phone, you lose the device that creates that code, you can answer a few questions and get a temporary code back. And I've been talking to my adversary simulation team today, and they said, yes, uh, the majority of the questions and answers are relatively simple. And in, even in some cases, it said, like, what's the name of your first, uh, your eldest sibling or your youngest sibling or your first sibling? Uh, hmm. And all of that information can be 
uh, obtained via background questions or background checks. It's highly advised to, to guard yourself against these two types of attacks by picking really strong questions and answers and not who your first dog was. But And in fact, when I get those types where I have to pick from a dropdown and some of them are the most simple questions to answer, sometimes I think of a fake answer and put it in there. The best course of action is to use the Microsoft Authenticator, the Google Authenticator, real apps within your phone, or even in some cases, go back to hard token. And then on top of that, if you are, let's say a CIO, CISO, or someone who has control over these platforms, really look to strengthen your recovery process so that it's not as easy to get a new code without having the token, essentially. But it seems like, to me, SMS-based texting is probably the lowest form of multi-factor and has the highest degree of risk associated with it. But I suppose still better than nothing. Absolutely. When it comes to telephone or SMS-based two-factor, there's even some different types of attacks like the SS7 intercept capability. So SS7 is more of a nation-state style attack where you can set up your own cell tower in essence and you can intercept traffic coming through there. And I, I want to at least point out in most Five Ice countries, those are all illegal to use and set up, hmm. but it has happened out in the wild. It's more of a nation-state style attack, but it's worth mentioning there. There's malware intercept, so creating a piece of malware that goes on a phone, typically Android, since they don't have a walled a garden app type of approach like Apple does, but malware has been seen out there in the wild that reads texts and looks for two factors and sends them to a centralized repository. You've got your standard social engineering types of attacks where, Dave, if I wanted to get access to the CyberWire platform itself, maybe I call you as a Bank of America representative and said, hi, this is Justin with Bank of America. Dave, there's a problem with your account. I'd like to prove that it's you. I'm going to send you a code. Could you read it back to me? And I actually go to, this, to your platform and I create a login request and then you get it and you're like, is this Bank of America or is this my own CyberWire? It's very hard to tell in some cases. And then the final type that we are seeing quite a bit of is using the Modlishka proxy platform, which is essentially you're going to create a login page just like the login page that you want to get access to. You send the user through a phishing email to have them go enter their credentials in. It's very much like a business email compromise style of attack where you have your own website and you're mimicking the two-factor login of the victim. The victim goes there. They're not really paying attention. They enter in their credentials. You steal those credentials and proxy it back to the, the real two-factor, which gives you the challenge, which allows the user to enter it in because you're running the platform. You can see everything going in and, it, and essentially you grab that and log in right behind them. Actually, not even behind them. You're logging in for them. They might hmm. see an error code and then there, boom, you're in. Yeah, it's a lot to look out for, but at the same time, it seems like there are some good solutions out there. Yeah, I would say try to stay away from SMS-based multi-factor and really focus on using Google Authenticator and Microsoft Authenticator. All right. Well, as always, Justin Harvey, thanks for joining us. Thank you. And that's the CyberWire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for CyberWire Pro. 
It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. Tomorrow.